I know I've told this story before, uh, but years ago when my older boys were little, um, I used to read to them uh, out of the Bible every night. And when we were in the book of Genesis, I think at this point I had maybe six kids, but they were all like under seven, like they were little. Uh, we were just like, we had the assembly line going. Um, but uh, I was reading, we were in the book of Genesis, and we were reading about Abraham, and, uh, and I, we had put the kids to bed, and Matthew comes back out, and he goes, Dad, um, did God tell you that he was going to make of you a great nation? Um, because the, the version, the version we read at the time, that was the, that was the way, um, it was worded. And so Matthew like followed the lingo. Did God tell you he was going to make of you a great nation? I said, no, buddy, he didn't. And he kind of got this twinkle in his eye and said, I think he's going to surprise you. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, which is kind of funny, but, um, but that conversation was 11 kids ago, uh, and uh, and at times it seems like he was totally right. There's there's just a whole mess of us, and the bigger the family gets, as we had boyfriends, wives, grandbabies, um, the more I sympathize with Moses, you know, trying to lead a grumbling, rebellious people of the Israelites. Um, most of us are chronically late, which is horrible, and I know they got it from me, and that makes it even worse. Um, we're loud and we're far too competitive. Like we can't, we can't do anything without like competing over it, which is, uh, which is crazy. And we all have this weird rebellious streak. Um, even the rule followers are like anti-establishment in some way. Like we just have this, we can't do things the normal way. Um, we've all got just enough redneck that we try stupid things all the time. Um, but probably the biggest thing uh, about us is something that you can't explain. And I'm sure you experience it in your own house. We're just, we're Heinzelmans. And that, like, means something uh, to us. It, it comes with a certain ethos. Um, my dad passed on this legacy to me when he married my mom. And I carry it happily. And we just do things like a very Heinzelman way. In fact, um, I tried to explain to my oldest daughter-in-law, Isabel, when she married my son, like I told her that being a Heinzelman is a weird thing. Like it's a real thing. Like, and you're, you're becoming this. And, uh, and I told her that, you know, her, her son, Jay Deal, is going to be my oldest grandson. And that came with like a certain amount of responsibility and, and privilege and like, and he'll carry that. He'll carry that Heinzelman ethos. And I think she just looked at me like I was crazy. Like I, I don't know what any of this means, which is funny because now she is like so completely and totally Heinzelman. It's like fits perfect. Um, but yeah, I, I think at the time she thought, and, and there's, for a long, it took her a minute. She was like, these people are crazy. People don't do this. Like what is happening? But yeah, now she's all in. Um, but I can tell you what, being a Heinzelman isn't, um, a, a blood thing. It's, uh, it's, uh, because Isabel's as Heinzelman as it gets. It's, a it's, a, a weird ethos. And I'm sure you guys know, um, from your own families what that's like. But, but, uh, but that's a little bit about what we're going to be digging into this morning. I told you last week we were wrapping up the first kind of major part of the book of Romans, the outdoor phase, um, which Judy pointed out is kind of funny. We're going indoors this week and we sing for the first time a song called Go Outside. Um, so a little weird there, but, um, but we walked with Paul through the door, the altar, um, and ultimately the labor. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, what any of that means, I highly recommend going back to the YouTube channel and catching that. Um, but... Uh, uh, because this book, you know, that that you can, we tend to study in short passages, in short bites. I mean, you could stay in this book 
um, for a year if you wanted to. But the problem with that is you take such small pictures that you lose the flow of the whole book. And the flow of the whole book is super, super important to keep things in context because the whole book is contextual. There's nothing that is not um, contextual here. And so we've been assessing that all along the way, kind of trying to hold the story together as we go through it. Well, having been through the first three kind of stops of the tabernacle, um, this week we're going indoors. Uh, I think, um, and Paul, uh, as Paul launches into chapter 9, we are in the holy place, um, which uh, this was kind of the Jewish name for this, uh, for once you go um, inside, this first chamber uh, of the tent that stood inside the tabernacle. Uh, because these, these walls, these lines out here, this is just an outer fence. It didn't have a roof. It was just kind of a fence that marked it off. Um, so everything inside the fence is called the courtyard, um, but, uh, but you're still outdoors, really. Um, but this was an actual building. More accurately, it was this really strong tent, really thick tent. Walls were fabric, um, but it had a roof uh, and, and a curtain that, that you had to pass through to get in, as well as another one that blocked off the, the kind of really inner chambers. Um, but this is where the, the, the uh, priests, when they went in, would worship. So they, they kind of went through the sacrifices, went through the labor and got cleaned up. Then they would go in and worship. And they would do it by, by stressing their history. Um, there was, there was uh, manna and, and uh, uh, the showbread and all kinds of um, things that, that were part of the Jewish history. So they kind of worshiped God by saying, look at all the things you've done for us. And they, they really stressed what it meant to be. A Jew. But when Paul takes us from, from the outside portion of the tabernacle into the inside portion of this letter, his entire tone and focus changes. Um, this is actually um, kind of fits the outline uh, of the tabernacle perfectly, which we'll get into in a bit. But, um, but let's read the opening text to see if you can kind of feel the change that happens. He says, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, um, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen by God's, uh, as God, to be God's adopted children. God revealed His glory to them and made covenants with them and gave them His law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping Him and receiving His wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ Himself was an Israelite as far as His human nature is concerned. And He is God, the One who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. I kind of highlighted the new tone, so hopefully you're able to catch it. But, but the first eight chapters of this book, Paul has been talking specifically about you, about me, about the individual. His tone was singular. And I've tried to, to keep us focused on that several times because it, it reads very differently if you stay focused on your relationship with God than it does if you focus on everyone else's relationship with God, everybody else's um, stand, uh, standing with God. Paul uh, can say something in the first chapter of the book about sinners, and we might be tempted to go, yeah, those people. Like, that's obviously not what Paul wants. Paul wants us to go, oh, that's me. I see myself in that. It's pretty clear his context. He wants us to read ourselves into the text. By the time he gets to chapter 7, the way he talks about sin is to say, I didn't know coveting was wrong until the law showed up and told me that coveting was wrong. He's singular through the whole beginning part of the book. He's talking about his own sin. 
Not just like sin generically, but he's, and as he gets into it, he's like, I don't understand myself at all. I want to do as good and I don't. I don't want to do as bad and I do. And he's talking about himself. He's being completely singular. And now, all of a sudden in chapter 9, Paul shifts gears. He's no longer talking about his sin or the sins of an individual. He's all of a sudden shifted to the entire nation of Israel as a whole. And I believe there's a really important reason for this. In the floor of the book, um, why he makes this sudden shift uh, to talking about Israel, um, is, I, I think is, is in the context. But before we look at that, let's just uh, kind of establish that this isn't a fluke, um, but rather an altogether new focus. Um, later in this chapter, Paul talks about another group of people. He says, concerning the Gentiles... God says in a prophecy to Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call them my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. That's us, non-Jewish people. Paul starts the next chapter with the same focus. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and the prayer for God is that the people of Israel would be saved. And he ends chapter 10 like this. He says, but I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yes, they have. The message has gone out through all the earth. And the words, uh, and the words to all the world. But I asked, did the people of Israel really understand? Yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I'll arouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I'll provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. And later Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I have found a people who are not looking for me. I showed myself to those who are not asking for me. But regarding Israel, God said, all the day long I opened my arms to them, uh, and they were disobedient and rebellious. And in chapter 11, uh, Paul opens in that exact same vein. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people, whom he chose from the very beginning. So all three chapters here, 9, 10, and 11, Paul makes it clear that he's trying to hold together one big central idea. If he's talking about it from the beginning of chapter 9, still talking about it in chapter 10, still talking about it in chapter 11, then it seems logical that everything else is talking about this same thing. If we hold it together, he's talking about one thing. And that, uh, and, and that greater theme is what it means to be the people of God. The plural people of God. This is both significant and it's absolutely fraught with tension. Honestly, as a Protestant Christian, we have no idea what to do with this tension. It's a tough one. We don't really even know how to juggle this. So this is going to be really fun. Now, uh, before we dive into the deep end of, of what it means to be a people, singular, made up of a lot of people, plural, um, let, let's look at the context of the book that I think leads to this discussion completely about Israel and the Gentiles and ultimately the church. Um, if you weren't here last week um, and, and, or haven't had a chance to listen to the message, I recommend it. Because we, we studied Paul's conclusion, his summation, his closing statements to the first eight chapters um, of the book. It's basically his final statement on the gospel uh, and the effects of the gospel on your personal salvation. Um, so that it, the first eight chapters hold together really tight. So just by way of outline, in chapters 9, 10, 11, Paul will talk about groups of people. No longer talking about our personal salvation, but groups of people. Like not the individual and individual salvation, but collective groups. Then in chapter 12, he transitions again and spends the rest of the book talking about how this gospel life lives out in the real world. 
And this part is important because if you don't understand you're part of a people, you're going to get into chapter 12 where he talks about your different gifts and how they affect the body. And you won't understand that if you don't understand that you are part of a people. And so it flows with the book nicely. Um, but there's really a significant um, kind of rhythm here. It goes from you to you all to them. Like that's the flow of the book. You to you all to them. Maybe you could say your personal relationship with God, the corporate body that that puts you in, and then the way that affects your interaction with others. Um, so it goes from you to you all to others. And when Paul wraps things up at the end of chapter 8, um, it ends with him talking about you, your salvation, your individual relationship with God. And this is significant because the book of Romans has more than eight chapters. And that's important. Because he ends chapter 8 like with this finality. Like, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Like, done. It is finished. But the book keeps going, and I think that's really important. Which means the gospel is about way more than just you getting saved. If the gospel was about you getting saved and getting to heaven, the book would end at the end of chapter 8. If that was the only thing we had to worry about, the book would stop at chapter 8. And when we baptize you, we would just hold you under a little longer so that you can just... (laughs) No, that's a dark joke. Dark, dark joke. No, there's more. There's more book. There's twice as much book than than that finality at the end of chapter 8. The gospel is more than just you getting saved and making yourself right with him. Now, that is definitely the root of everything else, and we should never, could never, would never, must never try to continue into chapters 9 through 16 if you don't have chapters 1 through 8, the heart of the gospel, right and deep in your guts. But I think it's significant that Paul doesn't stop at salvation. And this is significant because the book of Romans, whoops, didn't flip. Uh, Paul continues, and, and the next thing he seems to want us to lean into is that no one gets saved in an island. Or maybe a better way of saying it is that your relationship with God starts between you and Him, but it never ends there. I say this all the time, but if you had God, and uh, you know that old saying, if I've got God, I've got everything I need, that is not at all biblical. There's nothing biblical about that. Because it happened once in history. A perfect man in a perfect environment. No sin, no brokenness, no pain. Everything was perfect. The world was perfect. God was perfect. The man was perfect. And God's response to that moment was, this is not good. He looked down, saw the perfect man in the perfect garden, said, this is not good. And you don't live in a perfect world. You're not a perfect person. If sinless Adam in a perfect garden, where there was no death, no pain, prompted God to say, it's not good for man to be alone. Then what makes us think we could just have God and have everything we need? It's completely unbiblical. has been from the very, very beginning. You need people. We were made for people. And part of the gospel journey is, is recognizing that you are part of a people. And we will unpack how complicated that is. But first, let's actually look at why this is so important contextually in this letter. As I said, Paul wrapped up last section, uh, the last section, the personal section of the book with this statement. What shall we say then about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us, uh, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. 
For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from God's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scripture says, for your sake we're killed every day. Like lambs, like sheep to the slaughter. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears of today, our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. We, we talked last week about how this passage can be seen as a litmus test. Because Paul is basically telling us what our conclusion would be, should be, to everything he's written up to this point. If you read everything in the first eight chapters right, this should be your conclusion, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And if you don't come to that conclusion, you didn't read it right. We need to reread it. Because Paul tells us what we should get out of it. Every one of the slightest transition that Paul makes in all the way up to chapter 8 comes with a therefore. Paul's saying, this is true, so, so this is true. And if this is true then this is true. If this is true, then this is true. I'm convinced nothing can separate us from the love of God. He links the whole thing together. It's a clear test to make sure we're reading what Paul intended us to read. But, this does create a problem. And honestly, kind of considering what we've studied this year, uh, we should be the first to catch it. You ever heard the phrase, yeah, I've heard that before? Like, I think we all have, have heard that. I know it's a little cynical. Most of us are Gen Xers. We're supposed to be cynical. Um, but, but, but someone makes a promise and it, it sounds sincere and you're almost convinced they believe it, but you also know that you've heard that all before. If I tell you I'll, I'll be on time, you can go, yeah, I've heard that before. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then I just assume you're completely and utterly detached from politics, because that's basically the mantra of politics. Big promises, broken promises, more big promises. I've heard that all before. Well, our last series was titled, I Promise, and we, we looked at all the covenants, the promises that God made to his people, Israel. Now, imagine you were a first century Jew who, who, who has now put your faith in Jesus. And you know the Old Testament promises very well. Your entire life's been built on them. And you've been convinced that Jesus ushered in this new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah. And you're comfortable with all that. There would be nothing more natural in your worldview or your understanding of God, than to believe uh, that if you do what Israel did, if you overplay your relationship with God and just assume that you're good just because you're the people of God after all. In other words, there's no reason for you not to believe that if you mess up, God will drop you like a hot potato and find new people. Because it seems like that's what he just did to Israel. Or at least to a first century Jew, that's what it would have seemed like. I mean, we spent all Lent studying how faithful God was to Israel, how trustworthy are His promises. Only now, in, a, in the first century, there's these guys called apostles who are saying the Messiah is here. Only it doesn't look that way, the way that the rabbis told us the Messiah would, would look. And most of the nation of Israel doesn't believe this, so that's kind of weird. And, and now you've got these apostles going in about 12 years or so. Nero's going to destroy the temple, ransack the place. And that's okay, because God is still moving and working in the world. 
Only now through his new people who he's given the Holy Spirit so that the temple can go and, and take the Holy Spirit with them. And all these wonderful things are part of this new gospel message. And the best part is, Paul says, nothing can separate us from God. Can you imagine how easy it would have been in the first century to say, yeah, but I've heard that before. He said that to Israel. He said he'd never leave Israel too. And now it, it kind of looks like he did. How can I trust you when you tell me that nothing can separate me from God when he made promises like this in Deuteronomy 31, he says, Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will never fail you or abandon you. Can you see why a first century Jew, whom is, as far as they're concerned, just watched God shift his allegiance? If you want to call it that, from Israel to the church. Can you see how they might struggle with Paul saying, Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're at peace with God. In Christ Jesus. They'd be like, believe me, we're Jews. We know better than anyone that if you make God angry, you'll get your butts kicked. And now it seems like God is fed up with old Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are some of the most important chapters in the book because without these three chapters, there's no way that we could trust or believe Paul when he tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. In fact, I think these are some of the most important chapters in the New Testament because without these chapters, there's some passages in the Old Testament that wouldn't make any sense if we didn't have these to explain them. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Paul answers um, his answer to this potentially skeptic, potential skeptic who says, how can you say nothing can separate us from God's love when God separated himself from Israel and just left Israel? And now he's taken up with the church. Paul's answer to that question at the end of this entire section um, is, is at the end of chapter 11, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, uh, but I think it's important now. He says, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, that you will not, uh, so that you will not feel proud of yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of the Gentiles come to Christ, so that all Israel will be saved. As the scripture says, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel away from their ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. So Paul's conclusion is that the reason we can trust that God will never leave us is that he hasn't left Israel. And he never will. He's nowhere near done with Israel. And the reason this is so important in the New Testament um, is because in the Old Testament, the prophets say a lot of the same things. And if Paul isn't there going, hold on, hold on, hold on, don't think that God's done with Israel. He made promises to those people and he keeps his promises. If it wasn't for Paul saying that, some of those Old Testament passages wouldn't make any sense. And you'd have to wonder what happened. And, and honestly, some people do. Some people get into what we call replacement theology, where you basically say all of those promises in the Old Testament aren't really about Israel, they're about the church, and, 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 uh, and the, the church has replaced Israel. That's not what Paul says. Paul says God has, has put Israel on pause, or whatever you want to call that, so that he can invite more, and then he's going to go back to Israel. And Israel is going to be saved. It's really important theologically. Now, the reason that I belabor this connection between chapters 9, 10, and 11, and the promises at the end of chapter 8, is because if you don't take that connection into account, Paul's transition... Um, to talking about Israel feels really dramatic. He's like, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, hold on. 
Israel. <laughs> it feels like a weird shift if you don't get that they kind of go together. He's talking about God's promises at the end of chapter 8. And God has made so many promises to Israel that he asked to answer that question because it, it speaks to the character of God. But the original audience, going from one of the most kind of beautiful promises uh, in the entire Bible that nothing can separate us from God, um, to talking about Israel would have felt completely natural. Would have felt like, you know, if you're talking about promises of God, you have to talk about his promises to Israel. Now, why does that matter? Why is it uh, that we have to catch this dramatic shift from talking about individuals to talking about collective groups of people? Uh, and ultimately, doesn't it all just come down to the individual at the end anyway? Aren't collectives really just what you call a bunch of individuals when they get together? Like, what is, is there a difference? Uh, and this is where the tension comes in. Uh, first, I think it's really important that we understand that we're talking about groups of people here rather than individuals, uh, because otherwise you can really misinterpret some of the things that go on in this chapter. Here's a great example from this morning's chapter. It says, being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For Scripture says, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Though Abraham had other children too. So Paul is making a case that Abraham's sons, um, you know, Abraham said, your descendants will bless the whole world. And he had a lot of descendants. After, after a lot of people don't catch this, but after uh, Sarah died, he married a woman named Keturah, and they had like 12 more kids. So Abraham had a lot of kids. It's really easy to think that all of them, you know, could have carried something. They said, no, 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 Isaac. I've chosen Isaac as the one through whom your descendants uh, will be traced. Uh, and you could say, well, maybe that's about Sarah. Maybe God loves Sarah more and not Hagar or not Keturah. And so he wants, you know, maybe that's about Sarah. Not really about Isaac, but about Abraham and Sarah. But then he goes on and says, uh, this means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered Abraham's children. The promise Paul's referring to is that he and Sarah would have a child, even though she was 90. Um, and he's like, that's the important child. He even says that. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. That was the promise God gave to... All the other ones were like fairly normal. They, just, they had babies. But one of them came with God's promise. A year from now, you're going to have a baby. Um, this son will be that your, our ancestor. This son was our ancestor Isaac. Uh, and he married Rebecca and she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purpose. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your oldest son will serve the younger son. In the words of Scripture, I love Jacob and I rejected Esau. Now, this is a super easy passage to just assume that when Paul says God chose Jacob over Esau, he meant that God was choosing the man Jacob over the man Esau, especially when we talked last week about how we were all known and chosen and called and saved and glorified in Christ. There's only one problem with that. In that promise, uh, nowhere in the story between Jacob and Esau, nowhere in the, in, in the book of Genesis, nowhere in their entire um, history together, does Esau ever serve Jacob. It's nowhere in the story. And if this passage is about the two brothers, then the prophecy given to Rebecca is wrong. The older brother never serves the younger brother. In fact, when Jacob comes home from his uncles with wives and children and flocks and money, he gives gifts to his brother Esau because Esau wanted to kill him when he, when he left. He's trying to appease him. 
And Esau doesn't want to take it. He's like, I got plenty. He's like, I'm rich. Like, all's good. Like, they, the re, one of the reasons they made peace was because when they were young, they were fighting over stuff. And they're like, now we both got more stuff than we know what to do with. Everything's good. They're both rich. They both live long lives. They both seem blessed. Never does Esau serve Jacob. But if you don't look at Jacob and Esau as individuals, but collective groups, if you look at them as themselves and everyone that comes out of, after them as a whole, all summed up as a collective people, then the interpretation totally changes. I mean, we don't know ex- Jacob or Esau became Edom, the Edomite. Anytime you read about the Edomites, that's the descendants of Jacob, just like the Israelites, or, or I mean, the descendants of Esau. Israelites, descendants of Jacob, because he gets his name changed to Israel. Edomites are the descendants of, of Esau. And we don't know exactly um, when uh, Edom like became the slaves of, uh, of Israel, but according to the Second Chronicles, we know exactly when they broke free. It says, during Jehoram's reign, the Edomites revolted against Judah, and they crowned their own king. The passage goes on to say that they did eventually gain their independence. So we know there was a time when Esau's people, Esau as a collective group, served Jacob as a collective group. But it never happened with the individuals. Only when you didn't look at them as individuals and you looked at them as groups. Well, that changes the way you interpret this passage. Because if you interpret this passage as God choosing a person, it reads very different than if you, choose, if you interpret it as God choosing a group like the church. It changes the interpretation of this greatly. So in this passage in Genesis that Paul cites in Romans 9, can only be truly understood if you grasp that neither are talking about a person, but people and people groups. Which again is important if we want to properly understand a difficult passage like this one. For the scripture says that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you, that I may spread my fame throughout the earth. Now this is where we really lean into the tension. This is God talking to Pharaoh, one man. But just as Jacob and Esau represented more than just their own souls, Pharaoh, who definitely had like his individual heart, hardened by God, represents a whole nation. I mean, in the end, though Pharaoh you know, did lose his oldest son and, and had his nation decimated, he suffered very little compared to the rest of his nation. Like, people died and people were covered in wounds and people lost everything. And I'm sure some of them were lovely people. And so though God was choosing Pharaoh for a particular purpose, he was really choosing a nation. And the whole nation was was part of that. And this is crazy complex. Mostly because the Bible has a habit um, of referring to whole people or groups by one man's name. That makes it really tough. Technically, Israel is supposed to be the children of Israel. Israel was a man, but we call them Israel. And that makes it tough. But the other thing that makes it tough is that we're Protestants, right? We don't really know what to do with the fact that God has a special way that he relates to corporate bodies of people. And the way I know that is because Paul speaks in the plural in this chapter 40 times. They, them, Israel, Gentiles. This chapter is fraught with plural language. So are the next two chapters. They continue at at that rate. But here in chapter 9, all through the beginning to the end of the chapter, it's all plural. Beginning's plural. Ends plural. 
And yet, if you ask anybody about Jacob and Esau, almost nobody will think in the plural. They naturally think in the singular because we don't naturally think in the plural. We don't know how. And this is mainly because one of the things that unites all Protestants is that ultimately we believe the Bible has more authority than the church. It's the thing that, that, that marks us. Um, in a nutshell, there's variations to it, but that, that is what makes a Protestant a Protestant, is we hold the Bible above church. So where a Catholic would believe that the, the church both wrote the Bible, because Peter and Paul are part of the church and the other authors, but they also assembled the Bible, so it would be illogical to say that the Bible precedes the church in some way. So that's kind of where the Catholics get their church tradition is equal to, to, to Bible authority, is they're like, the church was here first. Um, so it, it makes sense that the church would have some um, authority. Protestants believe the Bible has way more authority than the church. And this varies, of course, if you're fundamentalist Baptist and then the Bible has a ton of authority and the church has virtually no authority um, or church tradition doesn't. Uh, um, in fact, you know, in, in those kinds of churches, which includes most non-denominational churches, um, the church is really little more than a fellowship of individual believers. Like really, it's just what you call it when a bunch of individual believers get together. A conservative Lutheran church might believe that church tradition has a great deal of authority. The Bible just has more. Like, and so they'll, they'll have it at more. If you're like a liberal Methodist church, neither have very much authority, um, but the Bible will always have a little bit more. So the one thing you can say is always true, no matter how fundamentalist you get or no matter how liberal you get, is that the Bible always has, in a Protestant outlook, the Bible always has more authority um, than, than, the, than church tradition, um, which, of course, is, is why we have a million denominations. Because if you have a disagreement about the Bible, well, there's no reason for the church to hold together um, when we're arguing about the Bible. So we hold the Bible higher and we split 600 some odd times. And although I'm theologically Protestant, I do think we need to wrestle with what it means to be a corporate people. What does that look like? Because we aren't just us. We're a people, and that means something. Here's a few things I want to draw from this chapter. that I highly recommend you read the whole thing. I don't have time to treat with every verse. I wish I did. Uh, but the first thing I want to see is that Paul's categorization of people is very broad, and everyone fits into one or the other. I think this is informative, because we know that God saves individuals and, and sanctifies us individually, but he doesn't just see us as individuals. He relates to us corporately. You know the, the popular verse, wherever two or three are gathered uh, together, I'm there in their midst. I, I quoted it instead of read it. Wherever two or three gather together as my followers, I'm there among them. And this is such a comforting verse because it means, you know, whether we gather for a church or a prayer meeting or a Bible study, it's so good to know we gather. We don't need thousands. If two or three are gathered, Jesus shows up, which is awesome. Have you ever thought about the negative connotation of that verse? What if I'm alone? Like, what if it's just me? What if I'm praying and reading my Bible, worshiping by myself? Where's Jesus in those moments? And I'm not suggesting Jesus isn't always with us as believers. But this verse makes it sound like God relates to us differently when we gather corporately. Otherwise, why would Jesus bring that up? Why would Jesus say something changes when you're together? Consider what God said um, when he saw the, the perfect Adam in the perfect world. This is not good. 
you and me, like I have, we, I have you to myself and you have me to yourself and there's nothing in between us, no sin between us. But it's not good. Abraham had his famous intercession for Sodom and Gomorrah where God promised the entire people group would receive mercy if there was just five good people in there. And on the flip side, one of the scariest stories in the Old Testament is the battle of Ai. When Israel conquered Jericho, they weren't supposed to take any spoils. And a guy named Achan disobeyed. Kept some. Kept some of the loot. It seemed like he got away with it. There was no thing. Except the next time the whole army went out into battle for their next challenge, a a town called Ai, a much easier, a smaller town than, than Jericho, they got their butts kicked. And when they asked God what happened, he told them someone disobeyed. And so they drew lots, they did the thing, they were shocked, they found out it was Achan, and his punishment was stiff. But, but in that battle, people died. Like, the corporate group went into battle, one guy sinned, and people died. And Achan wasn't one of them. I mean, he died later when he got caught, but... Can you feel that tension? Like, how is that fair? Right? Only one person sinned, and ultimately that one person did have to pay for their sin. But God related to the entire nation differently because of one guy's actions. And there's nothing more in line with the biblical pattern than that. When Paul steps in to talk about the groups of people in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's following the biblical pattern. People groups rather than just individuals. Because more of the Bible is corporate than individualistic. More of the Bible is talking about Israel as a whole, people groups as a whole, than individuals. We tend to read every single line of the Scripture as though it's God talking to me. God's love letter to me. Have you ever heard the Bible referred to that way? God's love letter to me. Not the conversation of the people of God over 3,500 years, but God's love letter to me. We have this this natural individualistic way of approaching it. But back in Romans, just to recap the kind of flow here, Paul says nothing can separate us from God. That makes you know um, one feel like that may not necessarily be trustworthy because God left Israel. He said he wouldn't. Paul's like, no, 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 he hasn't left Israel. Not at all. That's not true at all. And in so doing, Paul suddenly changes everything. Really subtle. Like paradigm shifting, narrative altering, brand new idea changes everything. And it happens quick and it's really easy to miss. Here's what he says. He says, and we are among those whom he selected, both of the Jews and the Gentiles. Now here's why I say that's a major paradigm shift. The entire biblical narrative, really from the moment God called Abraham, um, all the way and his entire family, all the way up till Pentecost, or maybe you could say Acts 10 when Cornelius gets saved, but almost the entire biblical narrative can be divided into two simple groups, Jews and not Jews, Jews and Gentiles. Children of Israel and everybody else. Everyone on the planet is either or. Like it's totally binary. And people were from different places. You know, they were given names. There was Egyptians. There was Ethiopians and Romans. Even within the Jews, there was tribes, you know, Judah. And and, and some of that was tacky. Like Paul was Saul of Tarsus when he first got saved. But those things were meaningless to the biblical narrative. To the biblical narrative, you were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. Period. And so what Paul does here that's so game-changing is he creates a third group. Like, and that, that changes the whole biblical understanding. In this verse he says, we are those who have been selected. 
I know this doesn't strike us as weird. We've had 2,000 years to get used to this. But with that simple statement, Paul basically introduces the church into the discussion. There's a whole new group that, that doesn't fall into the clean categories of Jew or Gentile. And I know that doesn't seem profound, but this is why the plural nature of, of this section of the book is such a big deal. Because we can have the tendency to think that it's a, the really important parts of the chap, book are chapters 1 through 8. That's like the really important stuff. Getting saved. And you know, between you and God, you know, what's really important is that you get saved. But, but when a bunch of people who make it through chapters 1 through 8, uh, they, they now have to figure out, who am I? And Paul's answer is, we're, we're different. We're totally different. We don't fit into the other categories. We don't fit into, like, we are our own thing. We're the church. We're those who have been selected. And it's more than a gathering of a bunch of individual believers who all relate to God independently. But the biblical narrative, and, and in this chapter and the next two, Paul is focused hard on groups of people and how God relates to those groups of people. The Jews. He keeps talking about how God is relating to the Jews. No, that's not any individual Jew. That's just the Jews, which is weird. We don't know how to think about that. He talks about the Gentiles. Keeps talking about the, and he keeps talking about the Jews like he's not one. Like, and that's what's weird. He's like, those guys, those Jews. Because he's not. He's now church. And that changes things. And it's something I think we need to get a hold of. Like, our identity matters. He's now church. He's now among those whom God selected. And here's the deal. If we put our faith in Jesus, so are we. We're part of a people. And the flow of this book, this is a big deal because we've tracked the journey from being a sinner of whatever variety to, to making God making a sacrifice on our behalf and being at peace with Him through the process of wrestling with our own sin. Now that we have done that and we're at peace with God and we're born again, we have the Spirit of God within us. The next step is to understand we're part of a people. That's not the end of the story. We don't just stop. Everything changes. If you're truly born again, then you have an entirely new family, an entirely new identity. Your status in the world has changed. If you were a Jew, you're now church. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. Not anymore. You're now church. You're a people. And what this means is, whether you like it or not, these are your people. Your fate is linked to these people. Usually when we talk about how we fit into the church, we only focus on the doing things, like your gift and how your gift you know, can be used and how the church needs you because you have things they don't you know, have. And we focus on functionality. We're important to the church for our functionality, what we bring to the table. And the focus uh, um, carries through. Almost any talk about the body of Christ and how we fit is functional. Like you have a job and we need you to come do your job. And, and we'll do things to help you as well. It's, it's this functionality. But what I'm saying is, is that you, you 
cannot fully access, engage, and understand God by yourself. Like how God relates to you and how you experience God and relate to God is dependent upon people. I mean, it's, it's, it's true throughout the Bible. All through the Bible it's that way. You don't just just uh, just get saved and then it's it's your relationship with God. We're all good. We don't need anything else. I've got God. No, Paul follows up his entire talk about getting saved with now let's talk about what that changes. First of all, you have a whole new people group. You are part of the church. You have people. And, and, and how you relate to me, how you, you interact with me will, will depend on them. We, so, we simply do not get to do the thing called Christianity without our people. Now, there's a couple of reasons why this is important. First, if I'm right, if God treating all of Israel differently because of Achan, if God was willing to treat Sodom and Gomorrah differently because of a handful of good people, if our fate is truly tied together, then I believe what we do matters. How we treat each other matters. How we show up for each other matters. Our sins matter. And not just because they anger God, because they affect all of us. When the Israelites got to the Promised Land, they, they camped just outside the Jordan River, and some of the tribes liked it there. They were like, hey, this is good land. I think we could just stay here. And when they went to Moses and asked him if, if they could just stay on this side of the river, when the nation crossed over, um, to fight for their land, they were like, can we stay here? This is like perfect for our flocks and our families. Like, we're good here. Um, after giving them a little bit of history of, of why they just wandered for 40 years, uh, Moses says this. He says, and look, you have uh, risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again uh, leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. I mean, Moses is kind of brutal here. Like, pack your bags, you're going on a guilt trip. Um, but Moses, Moses basically says, if, if you don't show up for your people, the entire people miss out on God's protection. If you don't come over and fight for your people, God abandons everybody. What if, what, if, what if not showing up changes everything? What if it's not just about we need your gifts and we need your, your presence? And, you know, but what, what, if, what if not showing up changes the way everybody gets to interact with God? And you might say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. I'm like, I pray, I read my Bible, I do my things. It's not fair that my relationship with God would be affected by other people. Paul kind of addresses that idea a little bit in this chapter. And here's what he says. It's not very satisfactory. Don't get your hopes up. He says, well then, you say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? He's referencing God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But the question is basically like, well, that's not fair. I love Paul's answer. Don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Not a satisfactory answer. Like, well, it's not fair. Shut up. You don't get, you're not God. 
We actually talked last week what can happen if we try to step above our pay grade and, and play God and try to figure out all this salvation stuff and how it affects all the people of the world rather than just focusing on ourselves. And Paul really digs into that idea here. He says, know your place. Know your pay grade. That's not your job to question God. And I'll be honest, I, I, I don't know how to think about the, like, I'm, this was a tough sermon for me. I wrote this thing three times. I don't know how to talk about, let alone teach about, the tension between the corporate and the individual. I really don't. I know that God loves and saves you individually. And He wants to know you individually. He cares about your growth and maturity individually. But I also know that God is always related to people groups. He's always related to us corporately. And and what, what one person does affects everybody. The number of nations and cities and people groups that the prophets call out is staggering. Very rarely do they talk about a person. Every now and then they do. But usually it's like a king. And in talking about that king, he's talking about the whole nation. But, but the, the things that God like prophesies against whole nations is, is hard to take. In, in the last judgment, it says he'll gather together all the nations of the world and he'll put the goat nations on one side and the sheep nations on the other side and, and he's going to judge them that way. What does it mean to be judged as a whole nation? Like We all kind of just assume it's going to be like, I show up, hey, I got saved, I'm in. I don't know what it looks like to judge a whole nation. I don't know how that works. Surely those nations have some good people in them. Surely they got some real turds. I don't know what happens when you try to judge the whole nation based on that. But I do believe God interacts with us as a people. And you are important to that. You are part of that. So how do we respond to this? I opened this morning talking about my crazy oversized family, but, but I tell you what, if you have like an event to pull off or something serious happens or God forbid you have to get into a street fight, um, <laughs> there's no one better to call than the Heinzelmans. Like we actually had this time. This is one of my proudest moments in my life. We, were, we went to an event and we were driving around the parking lot for like 45 minutes looking for a parking space. It was some, like, one of those traveling museum things, the Titanic, I think, when it was up at the Legends. And we've been driving around 45 minutes looking for a parking lot. Finally found somebody leaving. We stop, we put on our blinker, and, uh, and we wait, you know, while they get their car loaded and blah, blah, blah. They back out and this little car zips in. And... I had kids that had to go to the bathroom. It was hot. Like, and Esther lost it. I've never seen her lose it like this. She jumps out of the car, out of the van, to go yell at the guy. And, and I see him get out of his, his little car and, and put on this like aggressive face and, and start coming at her. So I jump out of the van. And what I don't realize is my five oldest boys did too. I don't know they're there. I think I'm by myself. Here's what I see. I see this guy get out of his car like, no, 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 I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'll move, I'll move, I'll move. And I turn around and all of my sons are behind me and we are coming like a wave at this guy. And he just stops on the dime. I'll move, I'll move, I'll move, I'll move. And, and yeah. So if you need that, if you need that, you know, give us a call. Ah. Uh, so, so that, yeah, now I'm lost. So that I don't really know how to talk about the line between the person and the people, I can say this. The church is the hope of the world. It's messy. 
It gets it wrong a lot. It, it's ugly sometimes. We fight with each other way too much. But, but God didn't, didn't pour His Spirit out on the whole world. He poured His Spirit out on His church. He sent that church out into the world to do good. To change things. We are God's vehicle for good in the world. He didn't just save us so that we could go to heaven. He saved us. He said, now you're part of that people and that people has things to do. And that's you and that's me. We, the church. That, that whole collective body is the only hope this world has. When he, when he called Israel, he said, I'm, I'm, you're going to be my kingdom of priests and, my, and, my, and kings. You're going to be the light on a hill that will show the world what, what God is like. And then he called us into that. And, and, and Jesus said, you know, Jesus said, you're, you're the light of the world. You're, you're a city on a hill. No one, no one lights a light and covers it with a basket. And we have a tendency to read that like me. I'm the light of the world. Like, don't cover your gift. Don't, don't hide your light under a basket. We make it so individual. Jesus is talking to a group, a collective. If you read, if you get into the Greek, that you, the Greek has two words for you. I wish we did. We don't. We have one word, whether it means you all or you. The Greek has a plural and a, and a singular. And that is you all. That's a y'all verse. Y'all are the light of the world. Just like when he talks about us being the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a y'all. Y'all, plural, are the singular temple of the Holy Spirit. We have a tendency to go, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. Like We, we think of everything like it's just us. So much of the scripture is written in that y'all form. Y'all are the light of the world. A city on a hill. I called you to shine in the world and be different. Not you, y'all. This is why I take church unity so seriously. Paul didn't mention the Jews, the Gentiles, and the 6,000 denominations of believers. Paul says there, there, there was two groups, now there's three. That's it. So here's how I'd love to respond to this message, because I could go on all day about this. First, check your identity. Don't call the woke police on me. This has nothing to do with gender. But own that you're a Christian first. That's your primary identity. That's, that's super important. Because there's a lot of things fighting for identity. Politics, labels, so much fighting for this is what I am. We're supposed to be a Christian first. Because, because that identity... Okay, I'm going to get off there. Never mind. Um, <laughs> how you identify changes your behavior. And this is your reflex behavior. Your reflex behavior. If, if you have time to think and rationalize and, and weigh things out, sometimes you can, you can act in a moral or ethical way based on reason. But your knee-jerk you, the you that just pops out, that you that, is, that is, 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 happens before you have time to, to think about it, which includes your temper and those kind of things, that you that's just there, that is totally shaped by, by your identity, who you see yourself as. Neurologists have proved
proven that six times a second, supposedly, the limbic cortex asks three questions. Who am I? Who are my people? What do we do in this moment? Who am I? It's, what, it's where central consciousness comes from. Like you just don't just automatically know who you are in the world. Your brain is constantly confirming that statement. Who am I? Who are my people? What do we do? Who am I? Who are my people? What do we do? Like you're asking yourself that six times a second, supposedly. But there's a lot of competition for that, for that piece of me. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? A lot of things want that spot. And who you give that spot to changes who you are in the moment. It gets ingrained in us. Your knee-jerk reaction could be, I'm a conservative. That's who I am first. Or I'm a liberal. I'm a Lutheran. I'm a charismatic. I'm an academic. I'm a blue-collar. None of those are bad. That's not who you want to be in that knee-jerk moment. You want to be Christian. I'm, I'm a Jesus follower first. Your identity matters. How you see yourself. Who you see yourself being attached to. Who are my people? Matters. So let me write down somewhere this week, I'm a Christian. Or maybe I am church. I'm the church. I know it's, it's not like a crazy, new, profound idea, but, but I hope right now that, you know, we're more than a world religion that, that we adhere to on Sunday mornings. We have a responsibility to the people we're attached to. And anything that can remind you of that. I have a people. I'm part of a people. Which brings us to the second way that I'd love to respond to this message. Lean into the idea that these are your people. Pray for the church. Pray for your people. Talk good about the church. Not just Open Table Community Church. Talk good about Open Table Community Church. But not just Open Table Community. The church. Don't fight negative language when we talk about the church. Talk about the church. Maybe that's a good place to start. Text someone this week in the church. Go have coffee with someone. Tell someone what God's doing in your life and ask them what God is doing in theirs. Lean into this idea that your relationship with God depends on your relationship with these people. How much are you missing in God because you're not connected to people? I can tell stories of, of, of some of us who, are, who have, have gone through you know, crazy new growth and, and deconstruction and reconstruction and, and strengthen our relationship with God because of the people we're connected to. We all know it's the case. We have, they, they, they did a study a while back, and I'm getting off track again, um, where they asked people to name the five most influential sermons they've ever heard, the five most influential songs they've ever heard, and the five most influential people in their lives. And it, it wasn't... Uh, the study wasn't about those. It was how long it takes people to find five. Almost nobody could find five sermons that truly changed their life, which breaks my heart. Um, that's like my whole job. Most people could find five people, but it took them a while. I mean, I mean five songs, but it took them a while. Nobody had trouble coming up with five people. Like most people just, oh, these people. We were made for people. It's important. Okay, so find your people. And as you do, pay attention to how your relationship with God changes because of your relationship with those people. I think it's significant. I fully believe we hear God better. We understand His Word better. My clicker is just not working. We feel His presence better. We even receive His discipline better when we do those things together. 
So as your brain asks those questions this week, six times a second, who am I? Who are my people? How do I act in this moment? For the first two, give the right answer. I'm a Christian. My people are the church. I'm a Christian. My people are the church. I'm a Christian. My people are the church. 